Thomas Chisholm wrote that song in 1926, and of course he based it on the third chapter of Lamentations. Interesting story, he was trained to become a Methodist minister, that was his life dream. When he finally got through seminary and got a church, he got sick, and uh, he had to, to leave the ministry, and his health failed him the rest of his life. He struggled, uh, he worked part-time in insurance, and in the evenings, when he had the energy, he would write poems and hymns, and this was one of the hymns. He sent it to a friend at Moody Bible College, who uh, then sent it over to Wheaton College, where a young man named Billy Graham was in school. Billy liked the song, shared it with his friends, George Beverly Shea, and they went on to a uh, crusade ministry all over the world where this was almost always one of the songs that was sung, so it became a tremendous uh, classic. Now, I I suspect that those verses from Lamentations chapter 3 are probably the only ones that most uh, American Christians have ever read, and I'd be almost certain that most people have never read beyond (laughs) that part of chapter 3, because after it reaches this great zenith of hope that results in this beautiful hymn, he loses it. And for some reason, he stumbles back into despair, and he says things like, You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. It would be hard to put that into a good lyric. (laughs) I'm not sure you'd want to for the voice. But but it, it, it strikes me that the Bible, in all its wisdom, in all its inspiration, chose to include a poem that shows a man attaining great hope and then losing it. Why on earth would that be in our Bibles? Shouldn't they have edited that one out? Well, let's think about that a little bit tonight. Lamentations 3 starts with, I am the man who has seen affliction. And the Hebrew word for man there is not the usual one. It can be translated soldier. It's someone who protects, someone who guards, someone who watches over. And so one of the ways you can read this poem is as of a defeated soldier sitting in the rubble of Jerusalem as he looks around and he sees the the families that he was supposed to watch over, the children, the women, carted off into slavery, abused, beaten, raped, and he can do nothing about it. He is entirely powerless, and he knows how things work in the ancient world. He knows it won't go well for him when they come to him. So this is the song of a powerless man. What do you do when you feel powerless? I was talking with a young woman in a very demanding profession once, and uh, she trained all her life for this, was very talented, had risen to the top of her profession, and one of the things that she was running into, and it, it was like one day the light switch went on, and she, this is how she explained it to me. She said, you know, I began to realize that there were certain things that were happening in and around me. This is, this is what she said. This is what I felt. She says, I... I felt it was because of my gender. She said, I felt that men particularly were treating me 
in unjust ways because of my gender, and I wasn't advancing accordingly. And I felt powerless to do anything about it. What, what do you do when you, you feel powerless? What do you do when you're in your 60s and you feel like you're at the peak of your, your value as a professional and you start to shop around a resume and, and nobody calls back? And vaguely, you realize that the date on the resume has pretty much precluded anyone ever returning your call. What do we do when we feel powerless? Well, we can learn one lesson from this shell-shocked Hebrew soldier, and that's we can start with lament. That's not to say that we don't work for change. It's not to say that we don't believe God can change things. I hope you've been hearing plenty of that over this winter in the study of the prophets. But maybe the best way to enter into any situation of powerlessness is to lament, to just acknowledge there is nothing I can do about this. I am impotent to change this. Maybe that puts us in a posture where God can truly speak. Well, the Hebrew soldier opens his lament with 18 lines of frustration. Uh, God, he says, is his adversary. He wants everyone to know it, and he just brings it. He says, God, you've brought me into darkness. You've put me in a prison so that I can't escape. Though I cry for help, you shut out my prayer. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He has filled me for bitterness. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. I have forgotten what happiness is. My endurance has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. What he's saying is, is essentially, God, I feel like you made me into a great big target, and you're just having target practice. That's how I feel about you right now. Well, again... Why would you put that in the Bible? How could that be helpful to us? Well, one of the reasons why, I think, is the Bible knows something about how people heal and move towards God and cope with trauma and grieve injustice. And that is by naming it. I think that's one of the things that's being modeled in this soldier sitting among the rubble. And someone, whether he's a soldier or not, someone actually did sit down in the middle of this horror, this holocaust, and write this poem. And he did it for a reason. He did it because as he knew his people were going into exile, and he knew that they would need to sing songs and pray prayers. And he wrote this so that the people in exile would have something to name, some tool in which to name their agony, to name their grief. So if we learn anything from a psalm like this, it, it, it is that it is important to name our disappointments, to name our loss of hope, to name our, our, our fears and our anxieties, both personally and in terms of the angst that is going on in our culture. It is important to speak it out. But we don't like to do that. I don't like to do that. When you do that, it terrifies me. 
I was in a small group a while ago. Somebody just started to pray a beautiful lament. I found myself going, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> See, I'm trained to be, a, uh, to be doctrinally orthodox, right? And so the first thing that I'm always on the lookout for is, you know, are we, are we in bounds here? Are we in bounds here? Are we in bounds here? Um, and there's, that's not all bad, but I don't think he's particularly worried about that at this point. I think he's naming what he's experiencing. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament professor, uh, has this to say about psalms like this. He says, I think that serious religious use of the complaint psalms has been minimal because we have believed that faith does not mean to acknowledge and embrace negativity. We have thought that the acknowledgement of negativity was somehow an act of unfaith, as though the very speech about it conceded too much about God's loss of control. And then he says, in these lament psalms, he says, nothing is out of bounds, nothing is inappropriate, everything properly belongs in this conversation of the heart. To withhold parts of life from that conversation is, in fact, to withhold part of life from the sovereign God. Everything must be brought to speech. Everything brought to speech must be addressed to God. Such a faith is a transformed faith, one that does faith in a very different God, one who is present, a God who is participating in and attentive to the darkness, weakness, and displacement of life. It's so important to do this work. And we need to be a community that allows this kind of work. And that means that we need to give a degree of freedom when we pray these kind of prayers to be, to be messy and unedited and filtered and even maybe to be offended and clean it up later. That's part of what this work is like. I think it's important for a lot of reasons. I was talking to a, a person a while ago that no longer comes to church, and I, I met with him. We had a good talk, and I said, why don't you come to church and, anymore? And he said, uh, essentially, this was some time ago, he said something like this. He said, you know, right now, I'm not sure what I believe. I'm not sure if I believe God is good. And when everybody in the room is standing up with their hands raised, singing God is good, and I don't believe it, I feel like a fake, so I'd rather not be there. No, I don't want to stop singing songs about God being good. Because he is. But I want you to feel on the weeks when you're not so sure that you can sit down and pout if you need to. And we don't send you a bunch of emails afterward. What was wrong, Frank? I wonder how we could become a community where you're, you're really free to lament. I think this is important because I hear this again and again that Christians can become self-loathing because I don't feel fine. I, I can feel less than because, again, everybody's praising like a beautiful service that we have tonight, and maybe I'm just not there. Maybe I'm angry with God. Maybe I'm not feeling it. Maybe there's a justice issue that I'm lamenting over, and I don't feel like anybody else cares. And I feel like something must be wrong with me. Well, this psalm, I think, says, no, you're in good company. This is part of it. There are seasons like this. So I I encourage you to write a lament this Lent, either for you personally over some issue in our 
culture that is breaking your heart. Remember, there's three parts, grief, protest, hope. And uh, you can take the filters out. I don't know what we'll do with it. We're having a lament service the Saturday before we start Holy Week. Who knows? We could have some time where, where we offer laments there. But do part of that work during Holy Week. You know, one of the ways I, I think this, this works is if you think of a, a pond or a spring that has grown stagnant over the years because the water's no longer flowing. You know, what, what happens to a pond like that? It gets, it gets putrid and stagnant and, and infected with bacteria and it smells. The only way you clean it up is if you open up the pipe and the fresh water starts to flow again. I think one of the reasons that we are to lament is to kind of get the water flowing again, to get, get the freshness moving again, to, get, to keep the water from being stagnant and dead. That's why we have to do this work. Because for most of us, something's down there. And you know, one other thought before we move on, I think it's okay if you can't name it, It may take a while to articulate what you're feeling, what's bothering you. I think there's even a, a, a cultural dimension of this, that you can be participating in sort of a cultural angst, a cultural anxiety. And we don't have language for it. We're not used to talking about it. But one of the things that happens when you sit down with a pen and you start to write a lament, when you start paying attention to your dreams, when, when you start paying attention to what comes up in worship, is you begin to see what's at the bottom of the pond. And that's good. And you don't have to have it all cleaned out by Easter. Well, the goal of lament is not just release or catharsis, it's hope. And that is what our soldier moves towards in verse 21. This I call to mind, and therefore I have Hope. He makes a deliberate movement from talking about his frustration, his anger, his confusion, his disappointment in God. He makes this shift towards hope. The Hebrew has this idea of, I, I turn it into my soul. So he consciously starts to think about God's character. This is what he calls to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So he makes this shift from his situation and his circumstances to what he knows to be true about the character of God to the deepest essence of God. How much more should we do this in the new covenant who have the gospel, who have the cross and have so much more revelation to contemplate? And he says, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. He's, he's talking about a story when Israel settles the land and God gives all the tribes a portion of land except for the Levites. And the Levites' portion is him. And so he's calling that to mind. He's essentially saying, you know, now God is, God is all I have, is all I need. Well, 
Here is where lament differs from the way we often understand the grieving process. Uh, The Cooper-Ross theory of lament, which I think can be helpful in many ways, identifies five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And there's a lot of truth in that, and that can help you work through grief. But notice that those are all horizontal uh, emotions. Those are things a human being will work through as they deal with grief. There's, There's nothing... No God in that. A lament is different. When we lament, we are not just trying to let out frustration. We're not just trying to come to terms with the the brokenness of life or or a social system. We're actually trying to move towards God in hope and invite him to come in and bring life and change. See, that's different than Kubler-Ross. There is no intervention in Kubler-Ross. This is an intervention when we're crying out for God to move. Lament begins in raw confession, but it ultimately moves towards hope. The poet Ann Weems lost her 21-year-old son, Todd, in tragic circumstances, and she became stuck in her grief, and a wise friend encouraged her to pen a lament. She did. Oh, God, what am I going to do? He's gone. And I'm left with an empty pit in my life. How could you have allowed this to happen? I thought you protected your own. You are the power. Why didn't you use it? You are the glory. But there was no glory in his death. You are justice and mercy, but there was no justice, no mercy for him. Oh, Holy One, I am confident that you will save me. You are the power and the glory and the justice and the mercy. You are my God forever. Now, what I don't know is if she wrote that all in one sitting. It seems to me that a prayer like that I'd take years to write. And if as far as you can get tonight with something in your life is, you are the power, why didn't you use it? That's enough of a start. But the goal is to move towards hope. You know, we've used this illustration over the years of an iceberg, and you know, if you have a big iceberg here and a water line, You've got stuff above the waterline, the stuff that you're thinking about, that you know, that you're conscious of. And then you've got all the stuff below the waterline. You've got old patterns and memories and wounds and trauma and beliefs and who knows, desires and goals and dreams and all the stuff that's beneath the waterline that you're not fully aware of. And so in your conscious mind, you think you've grieved. You think you've lamented. You think you've accepted healing, and it all feels lined up up here, and you're wondering, why is all this stuff churning down here? Why does it keep squirting out in passive-aggressive anger or in depression or in my stomach ripping up? Why? Why? I did it all. I got it. I said the prayer. Well, one of the reasons for the raw honesty of lament is to go beneath the waterline and for you to really acknowledge how mad you are at your husband. for you to really embrace how disgusted you are with what a family member did to you. 
That's not where you want to stay. But at some point, you've got to start there if you're going to forgive and heal. Well, verses 25 to 39 are just this beautiful, peaceful reflection on suffering. He reminds us that God is sovereign. He encourages us not to try to unravel the mystery of suffering. And then there's a, a beautiful call to, to repentance. And then despair rushes in. He loses his grip on hope. He's overwhelmed by the pain of his suffering. And there is this total about face in the poem. So you have this sense of peace and harmony and shalom and hope and acceptance and God's goodness and faithfulness. And then, boom, it flips. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us. You've wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You've made us scum and garbage among the peoples. My eyes flow with rivers of tears. And then if you read this later on, the last verses are, are kind of an attempt to remember all the good things that God has done. He's like he's trying to go back to verse 22. He kind of halfway gets there, and then he stumbles again, and he ends with this bitter prayer. God, would you just curse our enemies? So why does it end that way? Maybe a couple reasons. One is, Hope is elusive. The human heart is fragile. Life is hard. There will be times when you're clinging to God's promises and times when you can't, and both are okay. You're not a spiritual failure tonight if you're struggling to have hope. It's not a permanent state of the believer. We go in and out of it. I also think there's a way in which we need to keep this passage in mind when we think about engaging in the world and the brokenness of the world. Um, There's this line in uh, the new movie about James Baldwin called I'm Not Your Negro, somebody reminded me of earlier today. Baldwin says, not everything you face can be overcome, but you can't overcome anything without facing it. Not everything you face can be overcome, but you can't overcome anything without facing it. So, if there's an issue in your life that you're deeply grieving, if there's an issue in our community that you're deeply grieving, there's no guarantee that you're going to overcome it by facing it, but you've got to face it. You've got to deal with it. You've got to press into it. And that's where lament comes in. Now, a friend of mine, we were talking about Lent a little while ago, and they said, uh, you know, with my temperament, all year's Lent. I don't really need to be reminded of my own sin and the problems of the world. I hate Lent. (laughs) I thought, wow, good point. I think that's one of the reasons a lot of Protestants don't practice it. Um, It's a really good point. 
So what do you do with the book of Lamentations when you're maybe struggling with hope? Well, as I mentioned in the first sermon, this is a carefully constructed book. Each poem has 22 stanzas that are each begin with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there is a numerical and structural coherence to the whole book in the Hebrew that you can't see in the English. And one of the ways a Hebrew poet would emphasize significance and importance was by putting something in the middle. So what's in the middle of the book of Lamentations? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So maybe that'd be a good time to sit, a good place to sit, if you're struggling with hope. To just step back for a moment and remember the character of your God. Let's pray.